Well, our text this evening is from the second section of the Canons of Dort, Articles 5 through 7. But first, I'd like to read with you two brief passages that um, really emphasize that which is spoken here in our canons. We're going to look first at John chapter 3, starting at verse 13. And then we'll turn back uh, a few pages to the end of Mark. Starting at John chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus, speaking here to Nicodemus, who had come to him at night, says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their word works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Turning over then to the end, the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, just three verses, 14 through 16. Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Amen. Now, our canons of Dort, and this is page 100, I'm sorry, 268 in our Forms and Prayers book, if you'd like to read along. Um, calls us to recognize in the light of what we have seen already, and that is that, uh, that God's forgiveness requires His justice to be satisfied. Mercy demands judgment. And that Jesus came to pay that judgment, or to take that judgment, to pay the debt that we had against God's justice with a sacrifice that was absolute sacrifice that was of infinite value and worth. And then article 5 says, moreover it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise together with the command to repent and believe ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. However, that many who have been called through the gospel do not repent or believe in Christ, but perish in unbelief, is not because the sacrifice of Christ offered on the cross is deficient or insufficient, 
but because they themselves are at fault. But all who genuinely believe and are delivered and saved by Christ's death from their sins and from destruction receive this favor solely from God's grace, which he owes to no one, given to them in Christ from eternity. Amen. Beloved congregation in Christ, we live in an age of communication. Few clicks of a computer mouse allow us to access news from around the world. Starting a news outlet has never been easier. All it takes is a computer and an internet connection. Meanwhile, that same computer can allow any of us to meet folks from around the world, to meet with folks face-to-face who are on different continents, to share detailed information with the push of a button. We live in an age that allows communication that would have been absolutely unimaginable to any of the preceding generations. For what do we use these amazing resources? Well, obviously, to play games. And to rant about our annoyances and to enjoy our favorite movies and music. We live in an age of unprecedented opportunity for communication, we do. And we have been entrusted with the most important, with the most powerful message this world has ever known. Must we not find ways to combine the two? And I'm not saying that we are obligated, each one of us, to figure out ways to get the gospel online, to communicate. But what I am saying is that we live in an age that is characterized, if by nothing else, than by communication. And so whether online or by phone or face-to-face, we who have been entrusted with the greatest message man has ever known need to not hide that. We have absolutely zero excuses. None. Whatsoever. And we need to wrestle with that reality. And really this section of our canons calls us to do exactly that. Because this section of our canons, having shown us previously the weighty cost of our salvation, unimaginably weighty, but also the absolutely stunning generosity with which God has met that need, with which God has fulfilled that obligation. We who have received that and the knowledge of that We are called to set that before others that they might encounter it also. That's that's the message here. God sends the powerful promise of Christ's gospel. And he sends it to men without differentiation. We'll explain what that means in a minute. But we need to recognize up front, he's the one who sends it and we're the conduit. 
We're the means by which he sends it. It's not just Melvin Dodinga. It's not just distant missionaries in distant lands. When God spoke to the apostles, he spoke to the church as a whole. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That is our calling. And what we need to wrestle with this evening is how that calling is to go forth, how that that, uh, proclamation is to go forth, and also how to process the way it is received. Because it's going to be received in one of two ways, and each of those two ways requires us to handle it, to process it, to understand it a little bit differently. So that's what we're going to look at this evening. First, the calling to set that message before people, and then the calling to understand exactly what it means when they respond. But we really should start by recalling what precisely the promise of the gospel is. Our canons say, It is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a pretty concise biblical statement of the gospel. We just heard Jesus say in Mark 16, verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The gospel is offered to whomever is willing to believe. The baptism part that necessarily follows because God commands it. If they believe God, if they trust in God, they're going to do what God says. Jesus said in uh, John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And one of his chief commandments is be baptized. Be baptized. Receive that sign and seal of the covenant promise that you have trusted. We heard in John 3, Jesus himself said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, it's for whomever believes. And the content of their belief focuses on him who was lifted up on the cross for the sins of all his people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Begotten is not in our Pew Bible version. It is in the vast majority of the manuscripts and that's important. Because whoever believes on the name of the only begotten son becomes a son or daughter of God. He's not the only son, he's the only begotten son. The one begotten from all eternity by God. And he came into this world, he was lifted up on the cross... He suffered and died and rose again so that he could bring to adoption the elect as sons and daughters of God. That is the heart of the gospel promise. It is available to all who will receive it by faith. And those who do receive it by faith receive life without end and reconciliation with God. This is the gospel which Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16 is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now our forefathers taught us that this gospel ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination. What's that mean? It means we're to spread it as widely as we possibly can. Men and women, young and old, need to hear That what the gospel promises is exactly what we at heart need. 
It offers life in all its fullness. It offers hope in the midst of a hopeless world. And it offers it all freely. There's nothing we need to add, nothing we need to contribute, nothing we need to complete. Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved to die, rose again triumphant over the death that we were destined to endure, all so that we could know God at peace and have eternal life with Him. And it comes to all who receive it by faith. That faith must involve our intellect, what we believe. We need to understand what Jesus did and who He is and why that's important. But it also involves trust. Believing that He really did it and He did it for me. Real faith, saving faith, orients our whole being around Christ. What we believe, where we trust our understanding of who we are, the desire for how we will live. That is the gospel. And to whom are we called to bring it? The very first ones we are called to bring it, or to whom we're called to bring it. Are those little ones in our midst? Peter speaking to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, reflected the promise God gave to Abraham in saying, the promise is for you and for your children. And the promise, my friends, was the promise of the gospel. God said, I will be God to you and to your children after you, and you will be my people. That's the gospel. He would accomplish everything necessary to make us His own. Those little ones among us received at an exceptionally early age, most of them. Baptism. And that baptism was a demonstration to them and to us that the promises came to them. And now our children need to hear what those promises are. Because just as the promise is theirs, so is the brokenness of Adam. They are his descendants too, covered by his guilt. They are his offspring also, filled with his corruption. Our children need what Christ alone provides because they are guilty in Adam, because they are corrupt in Adam, because left to their own devices they will follow Adam down the path of destruction. So God commands them to repent and believe in Christ that they might be saved from the destruction that Adam wrought. But they won't if they're left to themselves. They won't because they're sinful just as we are. Unless someone teaches them, unless someone urges them, unless someone disciples them, they'll follow down the path of Adam. And so, dear congregation, it is our calling to teach them the gospel, first of all. That's the first mission field. Parents, mom and dad, it's nobody else's job but yours. That's got to be your mindset. Those children were entrusted to you. Sometimes you think, sadly, they didn't come with an operator's manual. That's true. But they did come with the Bible. And what they need is found there. So from their earliest days, 
teach them about the God who has claimed them as his own and teach them about the sinfulness and the brokenness that abides within them and teach them how Jesus came to bring exactly what they need and how all they have to do is trust him, but they must trust him. And that means we can't farm that out. It's up to each of us to decide how they're to be educated, what resources they need in their lives. But at the end of the day, it is our calling and fathers, especially yours, to ensure that they know the gospel and that it is set before them time and time and time and time again. Also, you elders and your pastor, you are not merely subcontractors of the parents. No, no. You have a distinct calling. You are called to set the word before them in catechism class and at family visits and in personal visits to each of those children. They have been entrusted to your care and you too, even as their parents will answer for how they were ministered to, so will you be answering for how they were ministered to. So you need to know those children and know their names and know their interests and know their weaknesses and know their strengths and make known to them their calling to know, to love, to trust, to serve the Lord. And let's be honest, that comes to all of us. We all vow at each baptism to receive these children in love, to pray for them, to help care for their instruction in the faith, and to encourage and sustain them. And that is a vow that we must all keep. That means that we need to get to know those children. They're not an annoyance that needs to be silenced. They're not little critters that make it difficult to focus on the worship, they are a blessing in our midst. A blessing to whom we are called to minister. So minister to them. Get to know them. Talk with them. Find ways to spend time with them. And remind them continually of their need for Christ. We also are called to proclaim the gospel beyond. And by the way, the, the, I emphasize the children there. We're called to remind each other of the need for the gospel. Right? I mean, we expect the adults to know that. But there's times we need to be reminded of what we know, isn't it? Isn't that the truth? Those times when we're wallowing in the depth of our unworthiness or when we are just filled with despair. Whether you're 5 or 50 or 85, there are times that you need one of your brothers or sisters to come alongside of you and remind you that your hope is in Christ and that He will never leave you or forsake you. That's not the minister's calling. That's not the elder's calling. That's our calling. And every one of us is equipped to minister in that way, every one of us. But we're also called to minister beyond the church, every one of us. In his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus said that we, all of us, are the light of the world. In fact, he said that we remain in this world with all of its sin, with all of its darkness, for the sake of the world, that the world might see Christ in us, that the world might learn from us to glorify God. That's why we're here. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. He's talking to all of us, from our young ones 
to our seasoned saints. After all, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who will believe. The Jews, that is, those who are within the church, and also the Gentiles, those who are outside of the covenant community. When Peter said that the promises are for us and for our children, he didn't stop there, did he? He said, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, Peter wasn't saying the promise is for everyone, but for everyone who believes. The second clause defines the first clause. All who are far off is defined as everyone whom the Lord our God calls. In other words, there are those beyond the circle of the covenant, beyond the circle of the church whom God has elected, whom he intends to call. And the way he calls them is through us. Yes, sometimes, sometimes he calls them through missionaries who stand on the street corners and preach. But not most of the time. Most of the time he calls them by a co-worker who invites them to church a dozen times. Most of the time he calls them by a neighbor who invites them to dinner and helps them fix their car and spends time with them and grows close to them until finally they're compelled to ask, what is it that makes you so different? Most of the time they're called by a distant cousin who demonstrates a conviction that's foreign to them and they want to know more. It's the people whom God providentially sets in their life who know Him, who are used to draw them into the covenant, into the gospel, into Christ. That's our calling. And folks, it's an essential calling. I remember talking to some folks who had just moved to Iowa from Alaska years ago. And um, we were talking about some of the unique things about living in Alaska. And uh, they said they were amused and a bit surprised to find that it was illegal in Alaska to pass a hitchhiker without stopping to offer to pick them up. And I said, it's illegal not to pick up a hitchhiker? They said, yes, because if you don't pick them up, they might die from the cold. Oh, you know what? That's our calling. If you don't stop to pick them up, they might die. If you don't share the gospel with them. And by that I don't necessarily mean playing Jehovah's Witness or Mormon and knocking on the door with a tract. Some people are gifted in that kind of thing and occasionally it bears fruit. But more often, sharing the gospel means sharing your life with someone who doesn't know Christ. Not, as our world argues that we must do, affirming them in every choice, in every decision they make but loving them despite the stupid decisions they make, despite the sins they embrace, not softening our own, our own stand and our own beliefs, but loving them despite their sin. And as the Lord builds trust with them, introducing them to the Savior. We need to move on. But brothers and sisters, we need to recognize this is our calling. And God will use us and God will equip us because I know what's going through most of your minds. Maybe somebody else, but that's not me. I don't have the insight to do that. I'm terrified of the very idea of that. Surely someone else. No. 
God delights to use what is weak to shame the strong, delights to use those who are humble to shame the proud. That's us. The humble, the weak, the small. And He will use us in amazing ways if we ask Him. So we need to ask Him to show us whom He would have us to minister to. We need to ask Him to give us the strength, to give us the conviction, to give us the ability, to give us the opportunities. And my friends, He will give you answers to that prayer. But you need to ask. And when you do, you need to remember that at the end of the day, the result is on Him. And that's the other thing we see here. There's two points, but they're, they're parallel points and they're relatively brief. You see, no matter what gifts you possess, no matter what boldness you might have in speaking, you cannot guarantee whether anyone will hear you. You cannot be sure what effect your testimony will have. But the results are not up to you. And that's a great comfort. Because sometimes the gospel is rejected without shame by the sinfully rebellious reprobate. See, the fact is, not all who hear the gospel will trust in Christ. Though nine children of the covenant respond with absolute confidence and faith in Christ, one perhaps rejects him. Though most neighbors appreciate your Christian love to them, one or two will despise your care. And so it goes. A relative mocks your heartfelt faith. A classmate refuses to accept your apology. A co-worker declines your repeated invitations to dinner. The best intentions aimed at offering the gospel sometimes are rejected. And we need to know that's not on us. There is one way and only one way to be reconciled to God. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And we heard him in John 3 verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Rejection of God invariably brings judgment. And that is where people will always go, what they will always do, how they will always respond if they rely only on themselves. And Scripture is exceedingly clear in numerous places that the blame lies with them. Ezekiel 3 is a beautiful example. Ezekiel 3 emphasizes the prophet's calling to call Israel to repent and to trust in the Lord. Now, Ezekiel's calling, because of its time and place, was unique. But it very much parallels our calling to share the gospel. And God tells Ezekiel, When I set before you a man who is condemned to die, and you don't warn him, he will perish in his sins, but his blood I will require at your hand. Because you didn't warn him. But he says, if I set before you the man condemned to die, and you warn him, and he refuses to heed your warning, he will die in his sin. But you will be saved. You will be exempt because you tried, you see. And so it is with us when God sets before us one who needs to hear the gospel. It doesn't matter who that person is, whether it's your co-worker, your neighbor, your friend, your distant relative, or one of your own children. God set them before you, that 
imparts upon you a measure of responsibility. You need to love them. You need to pray for and to look for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And as the Lord provides those opportunities, you need to speak what the Lord has laid on your heart. That's your calling. And it might be that God will use your witness to draw them to himself. Or not. Maybe they will suppress the truth in unrighteousness like the rest of mankind. Maybe they will reject your testimony. Because they love the darkness instead of the light. And if they refuse, folks, that's on them. That is to their condemnation. And on the last great day when they stand before the judge, your testimony to them is what will condemn them. Because God will say, this my servant spoke to you the truth. You had every opportunity to turn. You knew better. And you rejected But your testimony will glorify God because it will demonstrate He did not leave Himself without witness. He set you before them. Therefore, beloved, proclaim the gospel entrusted to you knowing that that's your calling. You aren't called to make converts. You are called to proclaim the Savior. Period. And at the same time, When one does respond, the glory doesn't go to us. John 3 again, verse 17, says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God sent His Son to save those in the world who don't deserve it. He's the only one who can do it, and He's the one who has to do all of it. And he didn't send his son in vain. He will accomplish the salvation of everyone who's entrusted to him. Time and again, God does it. He softens the sin-hardened hearts of sinners. He opens the mind that has been blinded by unbelief. He allows them to hear and to understand the truth of his word, causing them to grieve at their sin. Enabling them to recognize the weightiness of what Jesus has done. Leading them to trust in and to love Jesus as their Savior, as their only Savior. Even turning their lives in the path of repentance so that they're transformed from absolute abject sinner to disciple. And it is God who does every bit of it. He's the one who taught you to believe that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He is the one who taught you to believe that whoever believes in Him is not condemned. He is the one who led each one of us to become disciples, to be drawn out of our condemnation and into His life. God has done this 100%. And God is the one who will use you. It doesn't rest on your persuasiveness. It doesn't rest on your good argument or your attractive presentation. Well does Jesus say, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
We come to Christ, we confess Christ because we must. God the Holy Spirit is at work within us. He's the one transforming us. He's the one filling us with conviction. He's the one who's filling us with the desire and the ability. He's the one who works through us and he's the one who will lead them. And that means, my friends, we have no cause to boast unless we are boasting in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul asks... Why do you, or what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What did you, or what did I, contribute to the salvation we enjoy? Nothing. Not a thing. Except the rebellion that condemned us, and the defilement that disqualified us, and the hatred that enslaved us. That's all we contributed. The salvation, the repentance, the faith, the steadfastness, that was all given to us by God. And therefore, He deserves all the glory for all the salvation we possess. And so, too, for everyone who is saved through, in part, the instrumentality of our witness. Because God's the one who puts them before us whether our children or a co-worker or an absolute stranger. God is the one who leads us to recognize that there's someone who's open to the gospel. God's the one who has given us the word and the conviction. God is the one who opens their heart and causes that word to take root. God is the one who gives them the faith to take up that gospel as their own. And therefore it is not only to God that we give all the glory, but it is on God that we tr- or in God that we trust. I said we live in an age of communication. Young people, I want to challenge you. You spend time with those communication technologies that most of us adults don't. You understand it in ways and its potential that we can't. What does that mean for the spread of the gospel? I submit to you that is your generation's calling to figure out. But I submit to you also that all of those technologies, all of those opportunities make it abundantly clear. We have no excuse not to share The life-giving gospel that has been entrusted to us. That's how we have life. That's how we have hope. That's how we have confidence that we will never truly die, but will always live with God. Having been given this most precious of all treasures, how can we not share it with those who are dying in their unbelief? Our God sends this powerful, powerful promise of Christ's gospel to men without distinction. Our calling is to speak it and to give Him the glory when they respond. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what can we say? You have given us the greatest gift man has ever known. We deserved your condemnation. We deserved to be cast off by you in scorn. And yet you loved us and you embraced us and you deliver us. Thank you.
teach us now, out of love for you and out of love for our neighbor, to speak that gospel boldly and persistently wherever you give us opportunity. Make us so love you and so love our neighbor that we're eager to do so. And especially those closest to us, our children, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, our fellow church members. Enable us, Lord, to speak boldly and convincingly, filled with conviction, the truth of what you have done and of your trustworthiness. And Father, we pray this all with gratitude that you know us, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you have given this all to us. In Jesus' name, amen.